Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day. It is Wednesday, September the 25th, 2019. I am Carmen LaBerge, your host of Mornings with Carmen. Uh, And we need to be in the word before we're in the world today. Uh, No doubt about that. Um, And so let me encourage you to be certain that you establish yourself in the word of God before you enter into what will very likely be a... uh, a robust day of conversation wherever you are, in whatever environment you find yourself in, there's probably going to be one topic uh, leading the conversations, and that is going to be, what is your reaction and response to the uh, formal official impeachment inquiry now announced by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi? Um, how much do you know about impeachment? Um, how much do you think you know? These are all good um, good things for us to consider before we enter into the conversations of the day. Um, I am going to say this at the very top. I think that for Christians today, uh, our primary role should probably be to listen, to consider, to pray, and to sow peace. We don't know enough, really, to talk a lot. And so um, I'm going to encourage us to listen, to consider, to be people of, of deep consideration, to pray, and to be people who sow peace when others are are seeking to stir up what you know I would just describe internally in our country as you know a war between two sides, and so um, let me just establish a couple of things here. There's really actually only two presidents of the United States who've ever actually been impeached by the House of Representatives. Two in all of all of history. One of them was Andrew uh, Johnson. The other, Bill Clinton, and um, uh, neither of them. Uh, was ultimately removed from office. They were both uh, acquitted by the Senate. So a third president, Richard Nixon, resigned in the midst of an impeachment inquiry in in 1974. He's actually the only president to have resigned. Many people wrongly think that Nixon was impeached, but he was not impeached. Uh, And so I think that's important, uh, you know, in terms of just a clarification of U.S. history in case you thought Nixon was impeached. Um, The uh, House Judiciary Committee approved articles of impeachment for Nixon in 1974, but prior to that House vote on those impeachment charges, Nixon resigned. I I remember that day. <clears throat> Maybe you remember that day. I was uh, little. I was sitting at the top of the steps of uh, of the house where my sister and I spent time after school, and um, uh, Letha and Wilbur were downstairs. We had been sent upstairs, like, go upstairs, go upstairs, as if they were, you know, something really urgent was going on. There was a lot of emotional energy in the house. I sat at the top of the stairs, and um, I could see the television, like if I sat in a particular place and turned my head around the corner of the steps. Um, and uh, I watched Richard Dixon, you know, give his speech, resigning. And I actually thought America was coming to an end. I thought if the president left office, then that was it. What is your sense of um, the office of the presidency and your sense of who we are as a nation in terms of um, the dignity of that office and who holds it and and how that is supposed to work. And and it's not lost on me that the president of the United States was giving a speech yesterday on behalf of this great nation 
at the meeting of the United Nations, seeking to speak uh, words of leadership into the world community. Um, And on that same day, the Speaker of the House of Representatives chose to um, take the opportunity while he was out of town, frankly, to uh, to do this. So uh, there are lots of ways that you could have this conversation today. I am going to encourage us to first listen and consider and pray and sow peace into the conversation to the day. There's going to be lots of time to talk more about these impeachment proceedings. But up next, Drew Griffin and I are going to turn our attention to some international headlines. Uh, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine, up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, so joining me again today is Drew Griffin. You can follow him on Twitter at DG underscore NY. You can also check out what we're talking about today at Providence Mag. That stands for Providence Magazine, ProvidenceMag.com. Drew, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you? Well, I'm well. Okay, so can you tell us, first of all, what does a managing editor do? Goodness, what a, a, a lot of things. Um, basically, uh, manage and, manages and edits uh, ProvidenceMag.com, uh, wrangling writers and uh, pitching pieces and setting editorial direction, and um, uh, it keeps me busy for sure. Okay, so I love that. And um, because we, I like to read things that you guys post online at ProvidenceMag.com, but also recognize that there's a print edition of the magazine um, and sometimes we don't point to stuff in the print edition, and I'm going to today. Um, and so I just wanted to make people aware that, you know, Drew's the managing editor. He doesn't not just a nice guy that comes on and talks with us about the intersection of uh, U.S. foreign relations and the Christian faith. He actually, you know, has a day job, and this is it. So we want to thank you so much for carving out time um, to visit with us. Let's start with a piece that you uh, that you guys have up. Um, that's really on this question of uh, authoritarians and religious minorities. Um, and I'm going to set this in the context of the speech that the president gave at the U.N. So let's let's do um, a big conversation about President Trump's speech at the U.N. related to religious liberty. What did you hear that you think we should all take note of? Right. So the president gave a speech on Monday uh, at the United Nations at a special kind of forum that was uh, convened to talk about international religious liberty. And it was uh, really one of the first ever of these types of of meetings that was convened at the United Nations General Assembly, which is going on this week right now uh, in New York City. And uh, in it, uh, President Trump made, made a speech where he basically called on the world community to um, do more to protect religious freedom. Uh, he made uh, the point that 80, uh, about 80 percent of the world's population lives in countries where religious liberty is threatened. So um, speaking of Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs and Yazidis, all of these different groups um, face uh, levels of persecution and, and live in environments and in countries that lack religious freedom. And so he really called upon uh, the global community, not only political entities like nations, but uh, uh, businesses and multinational corporations as well, to um, do what they can to foster a greater level of of religious freedom and liberty, access to uh, religious rights uh, within their countries and within their corporations. And uh, it really was a a pretty, I think, robust and and, uh, good clarion call uh, to the international community to look out for uh, religious rights. 
Okay, and one observation that I made that um, I've gotten a little pushback from people about, um, you know, I've made the observation that there are sometimes that we say these kinds of things in the context of of the freedoms that we enjoy here in the United States, and we, we project these ideals to the rest of the world, but not everybody in the rest of the world, uh, you know, uh, well, certainly, they don't operate out of the same worldview. And so this notion that there ought to be religious freedom that's actually not an ideal that is shared by everyone around the world. Yeah, not at all. I mean, it's uh, it, it really is. Uh, I think uh, you, not necessarily uniquely an American idea, but definitely uh, a, a principle that's enshrined in our, our in law in our constitution uh, that we've defended for 225 years. That um, you have the freedom to believe or not to believe uh, in this country, and that the government is is there to ensure your ability to either practice your faith or not practice faith. And really to kind of stay out of the way. There are many other nations uh, where even if they have such liberties, they're not necessarily enshrined in the, the founding documents of those nations. And then many nations that are outwardly hostile towards uh, either religions that don't reflect the, the state preference of a religion. Well, you look at Saudi Arabia, you look at Iran, these are, um, you look at Turkey, these are uh, Islamic uh, nations that uh, have as, as part of their political apparatus uh, a preference um, and really a, um, an establishment of a state religion and that of Islam. And so any, uh, many other religions, any other religions um, that's, that challenge that oftentimes can, can be persecuted. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely something that is uh, something I think that we take uh, for granted. Um, and I think it's that we have a duty in, in this country not only to project out in our words um, that these values matter and that these rights uh, should be universal rights, um, but to do what we can in this country to display um, our appreciation for those rights and uh, create an environment where people from around the world can uh, access the type of freedom that you and I enjoy just by birth. So the piece that you have posted um, at ProvidenceMag.com is Authoritarians Won't Save the Middle East Religious Minorities. And it's um, Shadi Hamid. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, you are. And and um, this is a really fascinating piece because I, I feel like the point that he's making is, look, if you are if you're an authoritarian uh, in a particularly Muslim majority country, you have no reason to want to preserve the rights of religious minorities. In fact, you don't even have any motivation to preserve those people at all. Am I reading this right? Yeah, I think so. Um, Shadi's point, I think, is is really to push back against the tendency, sometimes on the part of, of the U.S. government, uh, political scholars and uh, people within the international uh, relations uh, community, um, to, to look at foreign governments and even totalitarian governments and say, well, look, you know, they one thing about a dictator is that if you can convince a dictator to kind of be on your side or be for, let's say, religious freedom, um, then, you know, there's nothing to stop him from uh, instituting religious freedom in his country, right? I mean, that that authoritarians could be a useful tool if we can just kind of get them to our way of thinking um, that they would, uh, you know, that even it's of economic benefit or social benefit to have religious freedom in their country. If we can get them thinking that way, then maybe those authoritarians will not necessarily have any other types of freedom, but maybe they will have, you know, religious freedom or freedom of uh, uh, religious expression. And Shadi's point, I think, is is well taken in that there are there are numerous 
uh, case studies uh, and examples throughout history and in recent history where that's just simply it never works. And that's just simply not the case that um, really uh, you it's, it's almost impossible to have religious freedom without having also the other freedoms that we enjoy. Right. The freedoms of, of speech, the freedoms of commerce, the freedom of mobility, the freedom of of assembly. All of these things are, are tied up in that. And so uh, most of those things, those ancillary freedoms are what are really a challenge to authoritarian regimes, that they don't want people being able to assemble. They don't want you know, critics being able to speak and having freedom of speech. And so um, really it's, it's all enmeshed and tied together. And so uh, I think Shadi is um, an articulate and, and, and well thought out um, uh, speaker and, and he art articulates, I think his message uh, well in, in our piece and throughout a lot of his, um, in his writing and other pieces he does for the Atlantic and other publications. And uh, so, yeah, we were really glad to kind of publish him and feature him on this and uh, hopefully speak into the foreign policy community a little bit as to um, what their expectations should be and what they should be truly advocating for when they're dealing with foreign leaders and other governments that are authoritarian or corrupt. All right, I think it's super helpful. All right, Drew, uh, Drew Griffin and I are going to take a quick break when we come back. We are going to talk about why uh, refugee resettlement programs actually matter for religious freedom. Drew is the managing editor of Providence Magazine. You can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. I am talking with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can check it out at ProvidenceMag.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. Um, okay, so Drew, we are we're kind of all expecting that sometime this week we are going to get some sort of official number um, that the United States is reducing the number of refugees that it intends to take in. Some people are predicting that number is going to be zero. You have a piece posted at ProvidenceMag.com by Chelsea Patterson um, Sobolik, and it is why a robust refugee resettlement program matters for religious freedom. Let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, since um, uh, Donald Trump has taken office, uh, the, the number of refugees allowed into uh, the, the country has decreased. Um, back in 2016, before he took office, it was roughly the limit was around 85,000. Um, and these are political refugees. These aren't just immigrants. These aren't just people who are wanting to live in America because they want a better job or they want a you know, better future or anything like that. Um, these aren't economic um, immigrants. These are political refugees. These are people who have, for whatever reason, due to political upheaval or war or persecution, lost their homes, lost their livelihoods, been uh, rejected and, and sent out of their country and fled wherever they are from. And they're seeking asylum. They're seeking some place to live, some place to seek refuge from. And um, uh, the United States has a long history uh, since World War II of, of accepting uh, refugees. And we're in a, a period of time in the, in the world's history where we have really the, the largest number, close to 70 million uh, people who are displaced from their homes and are refugees all across the world. It's, it's almost to levels equal uh, to what we saw after World War II. So the United States has a long tradition of allowing these individuals uh, to apply for asylum and for refugee into the United States. And since the Trump administ 
administration has come to power, since Donald Trump has taken office, uh, the, the number that we have allowed to come into the country and as refugees and then to be resettled, we have a refugee resettlement program in the United States, which has offices around the country, which takes in refugees from different ports and actually actively seeks to place them into society and into jobs and, and into um, American culture. These offices are closing down. The numbers that we are allowing in the country are decreasing uh, all the way down to this last year. We're getting into uh, close to 22,000 uh, down from, you know, in two, two years ago, three years ago, 85,000. And they're now saying that the numbers very well could go down to maybe zero, that that could be the goal. And the, the argument that's being made politically is that, you know, much of the as the immigration argument um, on the immigration and the crisis in the border, that the United States is full, that we really don't have the resources, that this is just, um, you know, this is taxing to the United States. It's potentially maybe dangerous to the culture. Maybe some of these refugees are lying or they're not really who they say they are and they're terrorists and, and all of that. But refugees to be screened in the United States, it is one of the most stringent screening process uh, processes that um, anyone who comes into the country has to go through. And um, what we've seen over the years is that all of these uh, refugees, the majority of them are Christians, the majority of them, since Christianity is the most persecuted religion uh, across the globe. Uh, it serves, uh, you know, it's no big surprise that the majority of these people who are refugees, who are seeking asylum and seeking uh, comfort from the United States and safety from the United States are, are Christians. And so it's interesting this last week um, on Monday when President Trump gave uh, the speech at the UN General Assembly on religious freedom that we talked about in the previous segment. You know, he's talking about religious freedom and kind of enshrining that and encouraging other nations um, uh, to uh, instill that. And yet, you know, there's there's more than just one way to serve the religious communities of the world. There's a rhetorical way to do it. But then one of the ways that the United States has done it is by accepting refugees and, and religious um, uh, people who are persecuted for their religion into the country. So it is um, it's troubling. It's troubling to a lot of evangelicals. It's troubling to a lot of Christians uh, that the Trump administration has made this kind of their goal to wean this program out. And so I think it's uh, it's a cause for concern. And I think it should be a cause for reflection as to what kind of country uh, we want to be and what kind of country do we want to project out uh, into the world? Do we want to be known as a, a country that's a safe harbor for pre people who are seeking freedom and liberty and the ability to uh, express and enjoy their freedoms? Or do we want to um, shut the door on them? Yeah, this uh, this is a heartbeat issue for me. I mean, I I have a hard time imagining um, what heaven's going to be like when I am you know face to face with brothers and sisters who you know who were alive at the same time as I'm alive, uh, and then whose lives were taken um, as martyrs in no small measure because the country that I live in wouldn't let them in. Like I, I you and I are going to spend eternity with the Christians who are currently around the globe who at a rate of about 11 a day are being martyred for the faith. And some of those people could potentially find refuge here in the United States of America if our refugee resettlement program and numbers were, um, you know, were at a level that would be fair. We're not talking about the United States of America taking in everyone, but we are talking about the United States of America taking in those we can take in. And uh, instead of just closing the door to to all. So let me remind our listeners that Senator James Lankford and Senator Chris Coons have a bipartisan letter uh, before the Trump administration 
um, stating that uh, at a time when we're facing the highest levels of displacement on record, according to the United, United Nations Refugee Agency, uh, we certainly urge you to increase the refugee resettlement cap and to admit as many refugees as possible within the cap. We have the responsibility to promote compassion and democracy around the world through assistance to the most vulnerable, and that includes these displaced people. Um, Drew, before we let you go, and thank you for being so gracious with your time today, um, give us a little peek inside the cover of the spring-summer 2019 Providence magazine. And the reason that I ask is because inside there, there is an article entitled Preachers and Spooks, and there's a bunch of us who always thought that some, there's at least some missionaries who are also some sort of wacky agent kind of thing. Tell us about Preachers and Spooks. Sure. So this is a piece that was written by Ben Polka, who is uh, a church planter in Washington, D.C. area, who also works in the defense industry uh, there in D.C. And uh, he wrote this piece just kind of um, uh, assessing both the, the history and, and weighing the morality of, of what has kind of gone on uh, in the U.S. government and our history of where, um, you know, when the U.S. government's looking into foreign countries that are closed off uh, diplomatically or difficult to get to, uh, they may not be able to send their diplomats, they may not be able to send their agents, but some Americans do find their way into these countries, and some and some of those Americans are missionaries. And so there's, there's a natural... Um, kind of affinity there, an opportunity perhaps uh, for the United States government to um, uh, take advantage of that and perhaps, you know, recruit or perhaps use um, uh, missionaries uh, for their own intelligence purposes or uh, kind of covert purposes. And so Ben kind of takes a look at that history, um, uh, assessing and weighing kind of the, the morality of that, you know, should a, a missionary um, engage with a um, intelligence service, uh, should they not um, uh, is it you know right for an intelligence service to use uh, missionaries in such way? I mean, it's it really gets to some of the questions of uh, the two kingdoms that we both occupy, right? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Uh, which one is subservient to which? And and um, it really weighs some of those questions out. It was a really well written piece, and um, yeah, it's part of what you will see uh, in the print edition of uh, Providence Mag. But then also soon it will be online uh, to read at uh, ProvidenceMag.com. All right, it's actually there if you little double click on the little live turn the pages magazine. It's pretty cool. Okay, so that's Drew Griffin. You can find him at ProvidenceMag.com and also on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. Hey, have a great trip to California, my friend. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So Peter Kapsner is in the house. Whoop, whoop. So we love talking with Peter about all things cultural, and Peter and I like to dig around in the cultural headlines of the day and, as Christians, apply the mind of Christ. And so today we're going to talk about transgenderism, we're going to talk about the confusion um, related to it, and we're going to talk about one particular case um, related to a three-year-old child. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever heard a story that made you stop and recalibrate how you think about life? Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. For me, one of the most humbling stories in the Bible tells of the widow who gave her last two small coins to the temple treasury. Of course, the religious leaders of the time would give more honor and credit to the wealthy who gave a significant amount more. But Jesus was quick to point out that the widow had given more than all the others because out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. 
When I think about that widow who had her priorities exactly right, I am inspired by that kind of courage and faith. How about you? Are you striving towards extravagant generosity? When you see it in others, it's hard to miss. And it's even more fulfilling and humbling to experience it yourself. So keep your eyes and ears open for these acts that may not seem like much, but really are ways to live a life full of generosity. Okay, sometimes you read a headline and you think to yourself, um, I'm going to need to process through that with somebody else. Hmm. And so the headline that I read uh, is, My girl became the youngest trans toddler at just three years of age. And the subhead, Luna, was asking to become a girl from a very young age. And mom, Janine, made it happen with the help of mermaids. Uh, Peter Kapsner is with us. Peter and I like to... um, talk with one another as Christian brother and sister seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on some of the cultural headlines of the day. And so, Peter, I'm just going to let you lead off. Um, you know, how do we how do we respond to process and uh, and deal with a headline related to a three year old whose gender transition was um, assisted by uh, by her mother? Yeah, Carmen, you know, it's funny when you, I don't know how you are, but when you respond to headlines like this and you see them and listeners too, and you respond to them, typically speaking, you have a bit of background knowledge or some different experiences in life uh, that you're hanging a lot, a lot of your sort of your comments, the, the, the hooks on them because you're, you've dealt with this sort of thing before. But this whole transgender movement, it's interesting, isn't it? We just, we don't have a lot of precedent about what to do. And we certainly don't have a lot of precedent about what to do in, in a situation where a mom helps her three-year-old transition. And so if we're confused and we don't entirely know how to walk forward in this, well, there's pretty good reason for it. It's, you know, again, we're not talking about years and years and generations and generations of research and evidence. And so I think what's most troubling about this story to me is um, where the mom went for her information and her guidance and her sense of counsel to try to figure out what was going on with her daughter as her daughter, well, it was her son, obviously, initially, was doing what many young boys do, and that's play with dolls or wants to wear dresses or perhaps put some makeup on in the playground with the other children. And in today's day and age, that immediately, of course, just uh, raises the alarm bells for a parent, and they don't really know for sure what to do in the situation. So where she went, of course, is she went to YouTube to try to figure out how she should walk forward in this. And she said, you know, I was really concerned. I was really upset. I didn't know what to do. I thought I was signing up my son, uh, ultimately daughter, for this sort of lifetime of confusion and pain and suffering. But I heard so many different hopeful videos on YouTube of parents that said that they made a successful transition with their child. And I think that to me, more than anything, Carmen, is uh, sort of the heart of this story is uh, I, I talk to a lot of parents these days, and especially in a generation where people increasingly are not going to church and for some, you know, for some very good reasons at times, the way the church sometimes has been the last generation in terms of abuse of authority and, and some of what we've seen. But the church is still supposed to be the place where you can go for counsel and guidance and insight from pastors or priests or uh, other family members in the community, and people don't have that. 
anymore. And oftentimes they don't even have relationships with their parents anymore. And so to have to go to a YouTube video to try to make a decision on behalf of your three-year-old child, believing that, well, this video must have you know, got 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 million clicks. It must be credible. And so I'm going to make my decision based on that. I think that's the hardest part. And I think a lot of us increasingly are making decisions for, out, out, out of similar reasons. Okay. So I think that um, as we talk about this subject, we Peter and I are always mindful that this is a really sensitive issue, um, that people uh, do suffer real delusion, um, that people do suffer um, from gender dysphoria. Um, but I think it's notable that this child uh, has been you know, raised exclusively by a single mom. The only influence in her life from the very beginning uh, was a female influence. Uh, the attempts of this extended family to intervene um, were shunned. Um, and and that counsel and advice, which was embraced, which was only that that affirmed uh, this this child's demand, desire uh, that he wanted to be a girl. And so it's one thing to... Um, you know, wear clothes that are, you know, maybe gender non-specific or even gender specific and are traditionally worn by uh, members of the opposite sex. It's another thing to actually allow a child to the language in this article is socially transition, make the social transition at the age of five, um, where this where this child was then treated in public by everyone presenting as a girl and expected to be received and um, and uh, related to as a girl. And so what we're what we're demanding here or what this one individual is demanding on behalf of her child is that the rest of the world conform, that the rest of the world um, participate in what at least some of us recognize as gender dysphoria and genuine delusion. Tell me, Peter, how I how I help my kids navigate a world where there will be people, including this child, who are going to present and will have been presenting as something that they are not pretty much their entire life. How's my how's my son when he meets this person? How is he supposed to navigate that relationship? Yeah. Oh, brother, especially at these early ages, Carmen, when it's really tough to figure out how to um help young people process this stuff. They're not in a position to be able to critically analyze it or get into the psychology of it. You can't talk about it. I can talk with my 19 and 17 year old much differently than I might be able to even talk about all of this with my nine year old. And and my wife, Hallie and I talk about that a lot. How do we parent our kids in light of this? And when you start seeing some of the potential Disney headlines of Elsa and Frozen 2 having a girlfriend potentially in the upcoming sequel movie. And, and what do you do about that situation? We have to figure out a way to talk about it. But I, you know what, I, I wish I had a three-step process by which to do it. Other than that, you do need to start talking about it uh, pretty early in terms of uh, using language of male and female and, um, and, and trying to help them explain that some people don't for sure know and that it's a confusing place. But Carmen, I'm, I'm at, a, at this point in time, it's interesting, I'm at a loss for words about how to parent moving forward for four, five, six, seven-year-olds. And, and it's a little bit akin to when I used to teach the sexuality, or I still teach the sexuality class, and it's akin to about 2009, 10, and 11, when nobody was asking questions about same-gender relationships and, uh, and the confusion about that, but suddenly it just took off. 
in our country. It took off because of the marriage amendment and all of what happened there. And I was at a loss at that point, too. And, and it, it took me probably about a year or two of some pretty careful research from a biblical standpoint, from a, a psychological, social historical church history kind of standpoint to come to a place that I feel like I have a pretty pretty robust response on that. But this is so new and it's burst so suddenly on the scene that um, I know how to talk about it from a psychological standpoint. And I, and I think like you, I have a sense that of what's going on in the confusion. But what I don't currently have is I don't know what to say to your four, five and six year old in this situation. And Hallie and I have sort of taken the tact at this point that we sort of need to just kind of form a hedge around our kids and protect them until such a time that we can start having these conversations. Otherwise, it gets really confusing really fast. Okay. So uh, for those of you who want to read this, it's actually uh, posted at Mirror, uh, which is a UK news source. And the article is my girl became uh, youngest. I'm going to get the whole, whole head here. Youngest trans toddler, isn't that the uh, one I'm looking at? Yep. Um, and um, and so I think that uh, it, it's informative to read because, again, the counsel that this mom seeks is among a community of quote unquote mermaids. Um, she uh, she stops reading uh, any comments of her that are critical. Um, she seeks counsel for herself in grieving the loss of her child. Which, for those of us who you know have have members of our family who um, have died as children. Um, this is different, and yet um, there's no question that there is um, that there's a real loss here. The question is who's suffering it. Um, okay, so Peter Kapser and I are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some other cultural headlines of the day. Uh, and if you if you're going to a job today that you think is mundane, I want you to consider um, for just a moment that the moment may come. The moment may come when a decision that you make in your job, as mundane as it seems could actually change the course of all of human history. That's the story we're going to talk about next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner, he and I like to talk about cultural headlines of the day, and sometimes I come across something that I can't resist, and so I put it in our little talking points and I um, I need to give a little shout out today to Stanislav Petrov, a person whose name you probably have never heard, but he died recently. And um, the headline is the man who saved the world. Now, you may have thought, Peter, that the man who saved the world was Jesus Christ, which is true. <laughs> of course it is. But he's the God man who saved uh, the world. But um, but tell us this story, uh, which took place in 1983 and most of us have never heard before about this guy, this Soviet dude, who actually also saved the world. Yeah, I had never heard the story before, but it is, it's akin to the Bay of Pigs moment with JFK and Cuba in terms of um, how tense things were between the United States and Russia and being on the cusp of a, of a nuclear holocaust on some level. And he was, uh, the Stanislav Petrov was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Union's air defense forces. And his job day in and day out, you want to talk about having quite a job, was to monitor the country's satellite system looking for any potential of a nuclear weapon being launched. Now, I would think that out of your 40 hours of the week, you're probably not going to have many moments, right, where you're going to be worried about something like that. But apparently he did uh, one night look up at his monitor, the, silent, uh, the, the siren howled, and it showed, at least on his computer systems, that there was five incoming ICBM missiles from the United States into Russia. 
And he had to decide what to do. He, he talked about being frozen in the moment at first. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. But then I, I just found the rest of the article fascinating in that he, he didn't panic. He took some time. He took some thought. He really sort of weighed the different options. And it was actually his job to simply report what he saw to the higher, higher up in the, in the Soviet military and let them know. And then they would make the decisions. But he thought this could be a, complete, a computer glitch. I don't entirely know. I don't want to start a nuclear holocaust uh, with a response here if it's actually not incoming missiles. And so he chose the tact of prudence and forbearance, and uh, those missiles were supposed to hit in about 20 minutes. And he talked about 23 minutes later, the whole thing was over. It turned out to be a computer glitch, just like he had figured it might be. And it's, it's a phenomenal story of somebody. How, how do you discern what to do in the moment when the pressure is on at its highest? I mean, what, what an incredible story. So um, it, it makes me want to, like, ask every elderly person I know, Tell me about the one day of your work life experience that nobody's talking about yep. um, that 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 we should be talking about well, because this this sweet man, you know, died all by himself and um, and nobody even took note of his death, let alone this day in his life. He died back in May. We're just now hearing about this. Right. Right. And, and I think what I love about this is he was obviously a well-trained person. And so when the moment came for him to be able to respond and react in an appropriate manner. He, he was well-trained for that scenario. And it, it calls to mind something that I read from Dallas Willard, who's um, he recently passed theologian and uh, out, out of USC. And he talked about the importance of the spiritual disciplines. I mean, I think for people like you and me and some of our listeners, sometimes it feels like drudgery to maybe get up and get into the scriptures or to head into a time of prayer or maybe some fasting, silent solitude, whatever those disciplines might be. But Willard talks about the fact that those are these practices that prepare us for that moment or moments in our life when the heat is on, we will then respond with sort of discernment in the kingdom. We will be prepped, we'll be ready uh, to be able to react to any given situation. And, And I think uh, to your point, uh, to talk to people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, even uh, somebody past 100, about how many of those kinds of moments they had in their life, it might be few, but boy, I bet you everybody has some of those moments that made a meaningful difference in the trajectory of somebody or in the trajectory of a company, trajectory of a church, and in this guy's case, the trajectory of the world, actually. All right, so something else I didn't know. In in 2015, Kevin Costner actually made a docudrama about this guy. The The movie is called The Man Who Saved the World. Um, and maybe just as a uh, um, uh, as an opportunity to get the conversation about who really saved the world, you could use this man's life, Stanislav Petrov, uh, and maybe you could even use this docudrama, The Man Who Saved the World, as a jumping-off point for conversation with others about um, our need for salvation and and the timing, um, the timing of life. I think these are good conversations for us to have. All right, Peter, you and I are going to have to leave it right there. Um, so much more we could talk about today, but fortunately, you are willing to come on every week. So we're going to continue these conversations about the Fifty Shades of Truth with Peter Kapsner next week. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, it is See You at the Poll today, and um, one dad just posted on Twitter uh, that his 10-year-old said, I thought that when they first announced it that they said, I'll see you at the pool. And so there are kids gathering right now around uh, flagpoles all across the United States of America. Let's be praying with them and for them as they bear public 
witness and testimony to their faith in Jesus Christ and to the power of God to intercede. Let's pray a hedge of protection around those kids as they pray at the poll this morning. If you are um, on your way uh, to or past a school and you see kids gathered together around a poll, um, that's what they're doing. You are uh, free to join them. However, this is a student-led movement, and so I just want to be mindful of that today. But you could gather people at the poll in other places and spaces, maybe at your county courthouse, maybe in other public settings uh, where a flag is raised, and you could use this as an opportunity to have others see you at the poll. What's the point? Well, the point is that we uh, recognize that we are one nation under God uh, and that the flag that we uh, that we live under and abide by and follow is the standard of Jesus Christ. And so let's be mindful of that as we bring the gospel to bear on each and every conversation that we're having today. Be sure you get into the word that the word might get into you before you get out there into the world that God so loves Um, And back to the conversation that uh, Peter and I were having about how we are going to prepare our kids to enter into the cultural conversations of the day, particularly when we're talking about transgenderism. So uh, I've got a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old living in my house. The 16-year-old is very concerned about these issues and concerns. And um, here's her plan. First of all, she's a very math and science-minded person. Uh, She has a very creative mind as well and likes to write. So, you know, she's got a dramatic little personality And, you know, she's 16, so, you know, boys are of interest. And uh, here's her plan going into college. Her plan is that uh, if a boy asks her out, she is going to say, "I want." first of all, I want to be sure you know, I like math and science. And then um, as a part of that, I need to know, do you actually, do you actually have a Y chromosome? So that's going to be her approach. It's an interesting one. Um, I'm wondering if you have talked with your kids about this and what their approach is in, in the midst of, cultural confusion today. Uh, Have you equipped your Christian kid for these conversations? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.